we're going to go to an old, a couple of old friends. The first old pal we're going to seek is uh, is our uh, fellow blue stater, the opposite coast uh, uh, in some ways parallel, I would say, of, of Radio Parallax. The very funny blogger, Mr. Tom Burke, are joining us now from, well, somewhere somewhere in New York. Tom, are you there? Yeah. Hi, Doug. How are you? Uh, we're, we're good. I understand you're sweltering back there as well. Yes, it's true. You, uh, we were talking about whether you could fry an egg on the <laughs> sidewalk, and I said you could just bake a cake on the street. But it, but it's a moist heat. It is a moist heat. Let's let's go back because we haven't had you on in in, in a forever here. Yeah, it's and been a long time. I think March or April. I'm looking back at uh, at your last rung here on opinions you should have. dot com, and we we start out with um, an oldie but a goodie. I think you pulled out from something you've done before. May 19th, GOP filibuster causes dangerous high winds throughout Northeast. That was an oldie but goodie, yeah. Uh, I had originally run it when uh, there was a filibuster to protest filibusters. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. As you said, uh, uh, hurricane force win- winds generated by enormous blasts of hot air during the latest Senate filibuster, and so some things are perennial. Maybe that's what's causing the heat wave. <laughs> Now, of course, um, you have an item here dated June 3rd, 2005, right about the time, of course, that uh, the identity of, uh, of Deep Throat was re- revealed to be W. Mark Felt of the FBI, which, which actually got some, um, some slams from a couple of people uh, on the, the Republican side of the fence. And, and you, uh, you ran with that, noting that in your headline, Paul Revere, a despicable tattletale, says GOP. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's probably not... Yeah, not kosher to laugh at your own jokes, but uh, oh, it's very. I th- we do it all the time. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> you said there were there were sensitive informations about military troop movements, which when which he'd been trusted. Said G. Gordon Liddy, an expert on ethics and government, <laughs> because Liddy did slam Mark Felt. I loved it. The Watergate burglar slamming Deep Throat for his ethics ethics. Uh, I breaches. have to tell you, this is the kind of thing that makes a satirist quail when. <laughs> As soon as Deep Throat came out, the first thing I read was Gordon Liddy saying that, you know, that Deep Throat was not ethical. And I thought, where, where can I go from there? Exactly. Uh, How do you satirize that? Also, later you said, Pat, Pat Buchanan derided Revere as a coward and a snake who was unwilling to be direct with the British government regarding his complaints about the monarchy. There were channels, he said. And you, you're actually parroting what Buchanan was saying, that it was wrong for him to do it that way. He could have gone to the Justice Department. <laughs> yes, uh, the, the same Justice Department that was busy throwing out the special prosecutor. Yeah, yeah. they were the people to go to. Well, you know, we I, when I was sitting in on the NPR affiliate here, we happened to have we had George McGovern and Dan Shore talking about that. And they got they got quite a laugh over Pat Buchanan saying, "Yeah, well, you know, if I were Pat, I'd probably be slamming Deep Throat too." June 9th. Now, of course, this, this is this is in conjunction with numerous reports about the fact that the Bush administration was editing scientific reports. You had. Guest editor, report shows that it's lined out, global warming exists, it's substituted, belief in global warming, just a fad. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that this was a report sitting somewhere in, in the White House. Yeah, I mean, that was like if it, you know, if it, you're, just, you're just bringing, to, you're bringing forward to the light of day what you know already exists. Right. The scientists believe that the polar ice caps will be gone by next year, crossed out stem cell research will cause dangerous flash flooding in Missouri. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. You said clearly the answer to the threat is to, it's lined out, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and sign the Kyoto Treaty, and it's put in, make abortion illegal. (laughs) Very good, sir.
I, it gave me a chance to say a lot of things that I don't get a chance to say. Now, about the time that Senator Bill Frist, I love this one, June 16th, you have asked Dr. Frist, and after quoting him, she certainly seems to respond to visual stimuli. Senator Bill Frist on the completely and utterly blind Terry Schiavo, later confirmed by autopsy of her brain, she couldn't possibly have been responding to visual stimuli. So you open up a, 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 a column, a column from Dr. Frist, which I liked very much, which I'll quote from now. Uh, Dear Dr. Frist, in the past few months, my girlfriend Sally's becoming increasingly distant and cold. What is happening? I enclose a video of Sally and me fishing for tuna off Florida last year. Sam, dear Sam, I regret to tell you from my examination of your video, not only is Sally sleeping with other men, among them the fishing captain appearing in the opening frames of your video, but you also have a degenerative neurological disorder. Best, Senator Dr. William Frist. I got two different reactions from this story. There are people who liked it and there are people who felt that it was extraordinarily late and pointed me to uh, other other similar as Dr. Frist. But the fact is, and I just want this to go on record, I wrote this when Dr. Frist was making diagnoses from photographs and uh, sure. videotapes of Terry Schiavo. Uh, and I was actually shopping it around to different places to actually try and sell instead of putting it on my website. And nobody wanted it because they said, by the time that they would publish it, it would no longer be timely, but they didn't think to wait for the autopsy. July 8th, 2005. And this, you actually had a best of Blogtopia. Tell us about that. You did a weekly roundup on that, on that episode of some, some stuff all across uh, the Internet. Yeah, this is something that I'm trying to do more often. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of bloggers do a lot of linking to other people, I mean, daily. Um, and it's something which I don't find fits in with my format so I'd like to do it every other week or so just to um, kind of highlight good things in the blogosphere and blogtopia was uh, a phrase which was formulated by a guy named Skippy Roo uh, I, I don't know where he got his name but uh, well but now we want to know of course with a name like Skippy Roo it calls out it cries out for explanation he has he has all kinds of things on his site including uh, yeah, Skippy the Bush ca Bush Kangaroo. He has a lot of things on his side. He actually has a musical theme, pictures of kangaroos. Yeah, your your most recent post, which 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 I enjoyed here, came from July twelfth. White House cannot confirm ever having met Carl Rove. In a press conference yesterday, White House spokesman Scott McCullen refused to confirm the president knew a Carl Rove or had ever come across anyone by that name. I will not comment upon whether the name is even vaguely familiar to me, said McClellan. McClellan dis declined to say whether the president still had confidence in Rove, would not say whether the president had spoken to Rove about the plane incident, whether the president knew Rove, or had in fact had ever heard of Rove. <laughs> I think that was, that's what we're headed in this. Well, I mean, listen, if you actually looked at the transcript of, of the previous day's yes. uh, press conference, yes. this really wasn't very far removed. I mean, uh, my favorite part of this was finally Mr. McClellan denied understanding the words Carl Rove, merely shaking his head and shrugging his shoulders in a show of incomprehension. <laughs> if they can't find it anywhere else, they should go to Opinions You Should Have and, and click on your blogtopia, because I'm sure you have a link there. A guy named Sebi Meyer uh, did, reposted the entire transcript, and there's a link to his oh, blog. Oh, yeah, it's in red. Okay, good, good, good. Right. I think if, if anyone hasn't done that, they really need to. If and, you're looking for some humor, uh, that's a pretty <laughs> funny uh, press gaggle. And and your last item, Tom, we'll wrap up with this one. You posted this one, uh, it looks like, a couple days ago. Shuttle astronauts to be subjected to random spot searches. <laughs> the, pr 
program was inspired by New York City's new program instituting random searches of passengers' bags on the subway. Federal marshal assigned to administer the spot checks uh, discovered two packs of dentine, a canister of lipstick that works in zero gravity, and nail clippers. The nail clippers were confiscated because federal regulations prohibit the carrying of nail clippers into the shuttle cockpit. (laughs) Tom, good work. We need to update every so often on here. Well, uh, yeah, we should talk more often, Doug. I, I always enjoy being around. <laughs> I, think, I think New York and California, we're fighting a lonely battle at this point. It feels very lonely, but I do like to point out that, you know, half of the country actually voted against this guy. One does take a bit of comfort in that, doesn't, don't you? And uh, four out of nine justices. Tom, it's, it's, been, it's been fun. Let's, uh, like I say, let's have you on again. Let's make it a regular deal. Let's, get, let's bring you up here in early September about Labor Day, because I'm sure there'll be something going on about then. That sounds good. A um, couple days after Labor Day, I will be uh, spry and ready to dance. All right, Tom. All right, Doug. Talk thanks to you. a lot. Okay. And, uh, and your website again, TomBurka.com and TomBurka. Thank you, sir. Okay. All right, Take care, Doug. Doug. Bye-bye. Bye. Start spreading. All right, joining us now in the program is an old friend who's not calling from New York City, but is in fact right here with me uh, in front of the microphone, our special aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zaravika. Welcome back, Vlado. It's great to be here. Now, we've done we've had some fun stuff here where I sort of try to do the, the play-by-play, and you acted as my color man. I thought that might be a good thing to try today. I'm all for it. Excellent. We're going a little bit... A little bit far field of aviation, and of course, uh, uh, and, and I would say that I would state for the record, my last history class was in the eleventh grade. So to talk about what happened in China in 1405, maybe taking us a little out of our normal realm. It is a little bit out of our league, but we're enthusiasts. So, <laughs> well, enthusiasm accounts for a lot. So let's 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 enthusiastically inform the public about what I read here in The Economist magazine, July 16th issue, uh, noting that the exploits of Chang Ho, or Zheng He, let's go with Chang Ho, there's, there's a little Chang imprecision. Chang Ho is, is okay. easier on the Western tongue. It is. We'll talk about the voyages of Admiral Chang Ho, which China was celebrating the 600th anniversary of last week. I guess, first of all, we should explain who the hell this guy was. He was uh, uh, one of the loyal eunuchs for the emperor at the time, and I'm going to mispronounce the name, uh, Zhu Di. He was uh, uh, a Muslim and a uh, eunuch and an admiral of the uh, emperor at the time's fleet. And the emperor probably made some of the largest public works projects in in history, unless, of course, you count Boston's Big Dig. Um <laughs> And uh, part of that was uh, building huge, huge fleets of uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of ships to explore the rest of the world. And the truth is, we don't, uh, the exploration has to be probably in quotation marks, because the Chinese approach to this whole fleet was quite a bit different than what was to follow with Portuguese exploration, which rounded the Cape of Good Hope going from Europe to the Far East. Chang Ho went the opposite way, but it's a whole different story. But let's 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 hold off for that for a minute on that. Sure. And just tell what we know about him, which apparently is almost nothing, from what I can gather here from the from this magazine article and other things. That we know that he was a Muslim eunuch. 
He was from Central Asia, and the eunuchs at that time, of course, I guess anyone that saw the movie The Last Emperor knows that the, mm-hmm. the eunuchs were kind of the powers behind the throne. They were dictating a lot of what was happening in the Forbidden City, where, where things were happening. Indeed, and I wonder if, it's in a, if it was a small price to pay for such power. <laughs> well, I, that I don't know. But uh, they certainly did exercise a lot of power in China for a long time. Um, according to what I've read here, Cheng Ho persuaded the Ming Emperor, Zhu Di, to finance this of what was to be the most extraordinary expedition the world has ever seen. Maybe in the, I don't even know what, probably, not, probably nothing compares to this voyage, period, end of discussion. Because from what I've read, he at one point had 27,000 men and 300 ships on his very first expedition. Which is, I mean, the story is, they had, he had ships that were 500 feet long. It wasn't an exploration. It was a mobile colony. <laughs> and, and according to the sources here, on the first, um, first trip, they sailed down into e- Indonesian waters to force the potentates to accept Chinese overlordship, which in the Isaac Asimov reference I have noted, that which they did, at least until the ships left. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and in the second voyage... In 1409, Chang Ho visited India and Ceylon. When the Ceylonese attacked the ships, he defeated them and actually brought the ruler of Ceylon back to China as a prisoner. And in total, made uh, made seven voyages, reaching as far as the Red Sea. He visited Mecca. He visited Egypt. I mean, this is truly a remarkable story that nobody in the West has ever heard of. Some of the ships, there are accounts that, uh, I, I use the term mobile colony uh, uh, half-jokingly, but there were entire ships that were uh, garden ships. There were ships, uh, uh, from what I had read, that were uh, just carried fresh water. Some carried horses. Um, some carried fish tanks so they could actually fish and store the fish in salt water for freshness. With And you had to feed 27,000 men. It was well planned it's, it's, out. It's, it's, it's simply, it's mind-boggling. It, it is indeed. I think only China in this era, being the unified large state that it was, could have possibly pulled off something like this. And wonder what more they could have done. Well, this is, where, this is what's truly fascinating. Let's backtrack. Let's go back to Genghis Khan. He unifies the East and moves West and basically brings territory, the world's largest land empire, under his control. So allegedly at this time, traders, Marco Polo, if he went, which I don't think he did, but Persian traders, Italian people, were able to traverse this vast expanse of the old Silk Road and trade from east to west. This breaks down. All of a sudden, goods become really expensive again. The middlemen are profiting handsomely from this. And a few bright sparks sitting over in Portugal are thinking, you know, if we could find a way to get around all these middlemen and sail there directly, we could make a killing. So we know this story about uh, Henry the Navigator and, and getting good cartography and sailing down the African coast till eventually Bartholomew Diaz sails around and eventually gets Vasco da Gama, gets to India, and trade is opened up between east and west. But Cheng Ho has these guys beat by like, you know, Decades. Decades, indeed. But trade didn't happen. The trade didn't happen. And and, and uh, correlation to modern day times is uh, the invention, is it really an invention until there's a, uh, is it worth anything until there's actually some commercial usage for it? There was no money to be made in, or at least the Chinese didn't make money 
the Portuguese found an economic benefit for it and sailed into the history books, literally. To, to quote here from Daniel Burston's The Discoverers, which he has quite a, quite a, a description here of, of Cheng Ho, it was a whole different story. I mean, the Portuguese had this idea of trade and, and sort of some conquest, gaining some land, finding trade routes in which they would just make a ton of dough off of. The Chinese were using this more as a showcase of why China is the world's greatest nation, don't you envy us? And I think, that, I think that's really, it's something that's hard for the Western mind to sort, sort of grasp. Is It was like a big PR campaign. Let, let me excerpt a bit from Mr. From Mr. Borstein here. Um, Vessels ranged in size from the treasure ship carrying nine masts, 444 feet long with a beam of 180 feet, down through the ranks of horse ship, supply ship, billet ship, to the smallest, the combat ship, which carried five masts, and measured 180 feet by 68 feet. Ibn Battuta, a century earlier, who was a passenger on a Chinese ship about this time, was astonished that these vessels were so much larger than anything they'd ever seen in the West. Westerners also noted the remarkable construction that prevented water from one part of the hull from flooding the whole ship. Bulkheads, a series of partitions, were novel to Europe, though an old story in China. Yes. Do you remember, Doug, how long the uh, Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria were, Columbus's ships, some I don't, but I was 70, 80 years later? About, uh, I th- well, they were less than 100 feet, if I remember oh, correctly. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they were. And here we're describing the small ship being, being 68 feet wide. Yeah. It's just like, holy moly. And Doug, not only did the uh, Chinese apparently have uh, uh, advanced shipwright skills, uh, they also had advanced navigation with uh, the compass and also uh, celestial navigation, too. Yeah, they they pretty much invented the compass, what, about A.D. 1000? Which is hard to imagine that in ancient times, the Romans, the Greeks, they had no compass. No. Yeah, let let me quote here some more. Cheng Ho took his navy, and we must not call an armada, for it was not designed for battle, to nearly every inhabited land bordering the China Sea and the Indian Ocean. To their own maps, the Chinese had added the Nile, Sudan, Zanzibar, and even some South Mediterranean places. They say that perhaps the knowledge came directly from Arab traders, but um, finds of, of Tang and Sung coins and porcelain along the African coast suggest that Chinese themselves were there. That's some uh, pretty strong evidence. Does it mention if the uh, the finds were in uh, shipwrecks or if they were found um, amongst the local peoples, maybe traded? Well, vexingly, in researching for this this segment, I've been unable to find a lot of data about this, even though these voyages, they hear the Chinese are celebrating them, and I'll bet of our listeners, I'll wager not one person's tent in ten has ever even heard of this guy. I would, uh, I would agree with you. But there's a reason why uh, he wasn't so well-known in the West, and it's not necessarily because of the West. Meaning? Well, when he got back from his last uh, voyage, there seemed to have been a regime change when he got home. Yeah, apparently the emperor, I guess he'd uh, been kicked the bucket or was overthrown or was gone. I believe he he had died. Yeah. And the new guy was not keen to spend a lot of dough with a PR campaign of how great China was all over the South China Sea in India. Right. It seems that the, that the new regime was more intent on uh, focusing on domestic issues rather than foreign policy. And, and the sad punchline, which I know is coming we don't want it with, before one final interlude, but China does, after this, withdraw when it's within itself, decides there is nothing out there greater than the, 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 the grandeur of China. 
the Middle Kingdom. So there is no reason to really go out to all these barbarian states. And so therefore they lose interest and they actually start passing laws to make it illegal for Chinese people to travel overseas. But, but before that happens, there's one more regime change. And after the guy that was down on the voyages was, uh, was in, in power, another guy comes in and gives it one last shot. And apparently Cheng Ho's seventh voyage was the most lavishly funded of all, but it was the finale. Yes, it was. So it's 1433, and, and that's, that's the end of it. Uh, Cheng Ho has established diplomatic or tributary relations with 20 realms and sultanates from Java to Mecca, and it all goes to hell. It all seems to have been wasted. And some of the research that I had uh, uh, done in this is that when uh, China closed itself off, and as if you mentioned, passed laws that uh, Chinese and people can't travel abroad, they also uh, destroyed the records of uh, all, most of the records and the maps and then the information that was gathered on these voyages, including the seventh and last voyage, which uh, some people have speculated went to some fairly interesting places. I know you've I know you've read a book that shows that kind of goes out on the edge and speculates on some of this. What 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 would this author come up with? The author came up with that at least on one of the voyages that uh, Zheng Ho's fleet had uh, mapped and visited both coasts of North and South America, both the West Coast and the East Coast of North and South America, therefore beating Columbus by at least seventy years. Well, I've often heard rumors that there was trade between Mexico and Acapulco and China before before Columbus, and it makes you wonder. Uh, it does, and, and, and the, uh, this author does speculate that some of the uh, ways of manufacturing textiles and paper and uh, pottery uh, was very similar in the Aztec culture as it was uh, in Chinese culture. Well, regardless of where he went, it certainly was one of history's most extraordinary sea voyages, and it just—I just hope that we could learn more about it. Maybe China can dig out some of these records. I'm sure there's—I'm sure they didn't destroy all of it. Maybe as China opens up to the West evermore, we'll learn more. Hopefully not, and we can give credit to a great sailor for what he had done. Vlado, pretty interesting stuff. I'm going to do some science in the third segment. You want to stick around for that? Uh, yeah. All right, and I know that some of you listening out there do know quite a bit about this, and again. Why don't you use our website, info at radioparallax.com, and let us uh, educate us a little bit about the voyages of Cheng Ho and uh, where we might be able to find some more on that, because we've been looking, and it's not that easy to find. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stands on golden sands and watches the ships that go sailing somewhere beyond the sea. She's there watching for me. If I could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms. 